Podcast. The Gospel According to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. Good morning again. It is time to get back and pick up where we left off here in the book of Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, which is, of course, a sermon that Jesus preached on a hilltop and thus the title Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We are excited to get back in and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Let's pray together. Now, Father God, as we acknowledge that this isn't like reading some book off a city library shelf, it's the living, active, sharp as a sword, word of the living God, sent to open up our hearts and go down into places that only God who created us can go, and for a good reason, to bring wisdom, life, light, truth, comfort. We're open, God. Do your work. Have your way. We belong to you. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So as you will recall, we finished up the Beatitudes. We called them the eight blessings with which Jesus began his sermon. They kind of formed his introduction of a three-chapter sermon, which I call Christianity 101, because God includes everything a Christian has to know to live an effective, productive life for God with no regrets. God's worldview, God's perspective, God's commands, God's way of doing things. It's just a really vital portion of scripture. And he began, of course, and we finished them up, these eight blessings, character qualities that he promised would bring blessing from God, but at the same time, they would bring cursings from the world. Because a world that loves their sin and enjoys running their own lives reject a message that calls for for repentance of that sin and lordship that somebody else should be running our lives beside ourselves. And so Jesus said persecution is part of the believer's benefits package, if you will. Paul told uh, his mentee, uh, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, listen, he says, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ will certainly suffer persecution. You're trying to be godly, you're trying to bring light in a world that uh, doesn't so much want the light and doesn't want to live a godly life. So that's the source of the friction. So Jesus now, 
in our text this morning from verses 13 through 16. He's going to enlarge upon that statement that your life is going to bring a little hostility and pushback, but don't let that hinder you from being who God made you to be. That's the temptation. So let's take a look at these words here. He has just summed up the uh, fact of persecution. He said, you know, you're going to invite some insulting or some uh, slander or mocking. But no, no worries. Listen, you still got to go on with the mission. He says, you're the salt of the earth. Can't stop that. <laughs> What if the salt loses its saltiness? How could it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Verse 15, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a big bowl. No, instead, they put it on a stand where it can give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, you let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And so we're going to get situated here this morning. Now, the benefit of going verse by verse through the Bible and teaching in an expository way is that you get context. And so, you know, these words about salt and light uh, come in the context of despite the insults, in spite of the persecution and the slander that you receive, Christians can't isolate or draw back or dumb things down for their own comfort, for their own convenience, because we're saved to save. There's a bigger mission going on than just that phew, we, we're going to escape the judgment and wrath of God. And now I go on with my everyday life, you know, and live accordingly. He says, no, we're saved to save. We're blessed to bless. God gives to us so that we can give to others. That's the way it works. And, and saving our souls is, is the same kind of thing. We have to be who we are regardless of the response negative or positive that we receive in the world. So he says, the new life in you, and this is kind of the pattern. If anybody comes to Christ, the Bible says the, you have, you're a new creation. So God is constantly, and here's the pattern. He tells you who you are, what you are, and then he says, I want you to live accordingly. I want you to be that. This is who you are. So God tells us, you know, how, how would we ever hit the bullseye for our life if we didn't know for what reason we were created? And so he's constantly telling us, this is who you are, now be it. No matter what it's causing in the world, this is what you have to do because this is how God saves, this is how God communicates, he does his work through us being salt and light, so we cannot stop just because the world makes it uncomfortable for us. I mean, this is how God saves people. Raise your hand if a Christian was involved in you coming to the Lord. Let the record show. 
that every single hand goes up. Why? That's how God works. So if the person who led you to the Lord was not going to be shining their light because it's too dangerous and I get too much persecution, I'm not going to be salt anymore in the, in the earth because I get too much pushback, man, where would you be? Where would anybody be? So we have a mission, life and death, really to be who God made us to be. He says, this is who you are, now be it. And this is the pattern we see. So here as you're looking at the text, the ancients had a saying common in Jesus' day that nothing is more useful than salt and sunshine. And most certainly Jesus is making use of this to illustrate his own uh, point here, our life and death usefulness to God and our life and death necessity to this lost world. And Jesus is now going to just make this bottom line, most simple common sense observation. He's going to say this, you're like salt and you're like light. What good is salt if it's not salty? What good is light if it doesn't dispel the darkness? And what good is a Christian if they're not acting and functioning as one? as God intended them to be. So that's the question to keep in your head as we have two points this morning. We're going to divide that up. One, note takers, the salt of the earth. Number two, the light of the world. So let's get out of the salt shaker and get sprinkled into the world here. As we see here, you are the salt of the earth. Salt, that's not salty. What's up with that? It's not used not uh, usable for any good thing except to be thrown out and for people to walk all over it. Salt of the earth, let's do this, okay? First of all, you see in both illustrations the intended scope of our impact, right? It's the world. It's every nook and cranny of life. It's to, the gospel is to every nation, tribe, people, group, and language. Why? Because of God's great love. God has a big heart of love for the world. It is not his will that anyone perish, but that everybody come to repentance and have life. And how does he get the message out? How does he do his saving work? He sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And as we go into every corner of this world, we bring the saving truth. That's how he says, salt of the earth, light of the world. We have a message that is for everyone we meet. Now, Jesus uh, compares us to salt. Now, God compares us a lot in the Bible to help us understand uh, his intention for our lives. So he uses a lot of similes, metaphors, analogies to help us understand his purposes, right? There's no shortage in the Bible. I mean, he calls us builders. We're working with him. We are co-laborers with him, building his kingdom in this world. He calls us fighters. He says, you're soldiers fighting the good fight of faith, guarding the gospel entrusted to you. He says, you're runners. You're like a, a Olympiad uh, runners running the race. And so you want to finish the race God has set before you. You want to cross that finish line and you want to, he says, play by the rules or you'll be disqualified. The rules 
that God has set in order. So we know what he does when he says, hey, you're sheep among wolves. We get that. We're trees planted by streams of water. We get that. Living stones, he says, you guys are formed like this great spiritual cathedral. And when you guys get together, the spirit dwells like this ginormous, beautiful building uh, or a temple for the Lord. So now here we've got salt. You're the salt of the earth. Now for modern Western ears, really Jesus' initial meaning, really not immediately clear. No doubt Jesus has several things that he wants us to think about here. So salt, number one, it enhances flavor. It brings zest and zing to ordinary things, to life, really. Now think about McDonald's french fries without salt. What a travesty. You know, but I'll tell you what, there is nothing like, I, I haven't been to McDonald's in years, but I will go for one thing and one thing alone for, for those fries. All right, and they're probably not even potatoes. <laughs> Do I care? Ask me if I care when that hot grease with the salt, bing, wow, it's beautiful. How about a steak, a piece of steak with that rock salt on it? You know, come on, a tomato from your garden with a little bit of salt. You know, a pretzel or corn on the cob with the butter, but pasta. Yeah, that's what he's talking about. Now, what does he mean here? He means, come on, nine to five. One writer said, how insipid, bland, tasteless, and purposeless life without God, without the gospel. Grow up, work, pay bills, get married, work, pay bills. <laughs> Raise children, work, pay bills. Take a few vacations, work, pay bills. And then it says, retire and die. <laughs> and you leave somebody else to work and pay bills. <laughs> right? Oh, come on. Uh, one person, a Christian, told me the reason they came to Christ was because how useless life is without purpose, without hope. And that God's explanation of even of the things that don't make sense now makes sense that it doesn't make sense. Did that make sense? <laughs> so, yes, God, man, without God, the salt, the flavor, enhancer of life to know there's hope, that there's a structure, that there's ultimate justice in this world, that there's a way to be forgiven, that there's a present, that we're not alone. We have a father who loves us who would lay down his life for us. Man, now you talk about making ordinary things zip. Man, that, that'll just get you off your hamster wheel and give you a little bit of joy as hard as life can be. Solomon said, meaningless, meaningless. He said, I'm a guy who's got it all. And I tried this experiment to exclude God from it. And he said, you know what? I came up with 12 chapters of meaningless, meaningless, Utter meaningless, everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? But when you live with a gospel, you got the zing, the zest, the, the flavor of life. And the Bible calls it life that is really life indeed. That's what we have. 
piercing the darkness and making a difference, and we taste it. And then that salt, in turn, along the same lines, makes others thirsty when they see how we're living. I was uh, uh, thinking I was alone at Trader Joe's. I was walking down an aisle. There was nobody there, so I started singing a little worship song because I was happy, you know, and uh, just uh, singing about your grace is enough, your grace is enough, your grace is... Uh, and I turn, and there's a worker right there, right in my face. Your grace is enough. And so he says, whoa, look who's happy today. And I, and I say... Of course I'm happy. My sins are all washed away. I'm going to heaven, and God is making all things work for my good. And he said, can I help you find something? But I'm telling you what, people want hamsters on cage and spinning on their little wheel. They want to know there's a purpose to life. They want a song to sing, especially at night. And we make them thirsty while our marriages are working before their very eyes. All I have to do is say something, well, yeah, I was mar- I've been married for 33 years, and everybody's astounded. They're astounded, 33 years. It's like... Well, yeah, it's like, you know, because I love my wife and she loves me and we made a promise before God and the Holy Spirit helps us through the hard times. It makes them thirsty when you don't fall apart at every little challenge. Oh, something new and difficult comes your way and there's this peace. And they just start getting their appetite a little bit. I'm a little thirsty. I'm a little drawn to that. This is what Jesus said. You got to be that. You are that. So be that. Right? The Samaritan woman meets Jesus. He strikes up a conversation with him along this same lines, coincidentally, about living water and being thirsty. And he says something to her. He says, I know all about you. I know about your five husbands, failed marriages, a string of them. And the guy you're living with now, you're not even married to him. I know all about you. And he said it in such an endearing way that she was touched as she went home to her village. She didn't go to Bible college. She's a woman with a broken life. And she started telling people, I met this man. He knew everything about me. He talked to me in such beautiful tones of acceptance and love. But he knew me better than I know myself. Could this be the Christ? Oh, they start getting thirsty. Who doesn't want a savior that you can go to, who can look right through you and know everything about you and still love you? Who's not thirsty for that? The whole village turned out to go see the one who can give the waters of life, living water to satisfy and quench our thirst. That's our job. Sometimes we do it without even knowing we're doing it. But we are to make people thirsty. But probably the big ticket item of what Jesus meant 
And the audience in front of him surely knew that he was referring to salt in its function as a preservative for food, and especially for fish and meat. With no refrigeration, they would rub the salt into, I think I got a picture of the fish, right? They just rub that in there, and what the salt did was kind of slow, here's a fun word, the putrefaction, <laughs> the corruption, the festering, the infection, the, and, and listen to Jesus' point with double ears here. It slowed the progression of corruption, rotting, spoiling, going bad, becoming useless, and ultimately to be discarded, to be thrown away. So you can go back to our verses. Jesus is saying our presence in this world is really due to the Holy Spirit, uh, really has an antiseptic effect you know, on people and in communities. The gospel preached and lived out, really? It just keeps the rotting process at bay, really. And yes, a little sting in the wound, of course. An open festering wound gets salt in it. It's good for it. But there's a sting and there's an ouch and there's a pushback and there's a no. But oh, blessed sting, you need to be salt. Because the sting wakes up the soul that there's a lethal, ugly, gangrenous lesion in our hearts called sin. And first you've got to know and feel about it and kind of just sense that it's there and rotting and the end of it. But the only place to find relief and healing and purity is in Christ Jesus. And so that's a blessed sting when it goes out like that. Nations without a Christian influence, without the salt of the gospel, are notoriously lacking law and order, benevolence, morality, <laughs> protections for those who are weaker, disadvantaged, and vulnerable. You go to a nation where there's not one <laughs> grain of salt. You'll find a very dark and corrupt place, as it is in a nation that has the Bible on the Supreme Court walls and etched into the doors and scripture verses on all the monuments there in Washington. As it is there, it is still hard to stem the tide of corruption. But at least it's there. Now a day is coming when every last <laughs> grain of salt will be removed from this earth, the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that we who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord shall be caught up and removed out of harm's way. The restraining factor of this world with the restraining holiness, the restraining salt and preservation, the morality, the consciousness of God and right and wrong will be removed and the world will live 2,550 days until it implodes. Why? Because you remove the restraining, purifying character of the gospel. You see? And so what will happen is this, without us, without us on the planet, 
The world self-destructs and unravels, falls apart like shattered glass. Seven years, done. It's useless. Because why? Because we're gone. And he appears. This is his point. So he says, you know, imagine how important you are. And by the way, the you there is in what's called the emphatic tense. It means you and only you. There's no more. There's no other remedy. There's no other philosophy. There's no other plan to cleanse a, a defiled soul than the blood of Christ. That's the only remedy God knows. And he says, you alone. Now, in light of the importance, he's got a question to ask, and you can follow me there. Along, he says, what if salt loses its saltiness and no longer does what it's supposed to do? Wow. Well, how does that happen? Well, let's talk about salt in the old days. Back where he's from, rural times, uh, salt was kind of crude in its form, so they take it from salt marshes, not the evaporated, more pure variety of salt. Uh, These salt marshes contain many impurities, and so the actual real salt was more soluble and could be leached out with time and weather and all of that. And what was left was as useless as a bunch of dirt. And so he says to lose saltiness, by the way, the verb can also mean to become defiled or to become foolish, interestingly. So here's what he's saying. He just talked about being persecuted. He says, if you don't handle this persecution that you receive, you might be tempted to let the world leech out of you your saltiness because it's the salty factor that kind of gets you the, the, the hand back, right? Because the ouch, bam. So you're tempted to say, okay, you know what? I've got some sugar, you know? And so interesting. He didn't say you are the sugar of the world. Oh, he could have said, you are, the, you are the high fructose corn syrup of the world. No, he didn't say that. Yes, we, we have the king of kindness. And even when we apply the antiseptic, we do it in the most loving, kind, diplomatic, humble way possible. But when you have gangrene, you want the meds and you want to feel it's working. You don't give them some syrupy, watered-down, insipid, nothing spiritual, nonsense message. And he says, you know what's good for that? He says, they'll walk right over you. He says, you know what? If you're not doing your job, you're not making a difference. You're not bringing the zing. You're not bringing a sting. You're not bringing anything. Oh, you know what? Say what you want. You know what? When life gives you lemons, make lemonade, man. Sorry. (laughs) We could take that out of the sermon. I'll just snip <laughs> You can say what you want and have your spiritual ideas that Jesus says the word trample there means they don't take no mind of you. You're a Christian, a child of God with a life-saving message, and they just walk on top of you, on over you, on the path to destruction. Just so sad unstung, unimpressed, undeterred. God says, you've got to have the zing. You've got to have the zing. Don't take the zing out. You ain't got a thing if you ain't got that zing. (laughs) 
Here's the moral of the story before we get a little sunshine and light. A Christian that doesn't act like a Christian isn't a whole lot of use to God or the dark world around them. Useless. And come on, people. It doesn't have anything to do with eternal security. This is about eternal productiveness and effectiveness. There'll be Christians in heaven that were more useful than others. Jesus just asked the question, do you want to be one of them? Let's move on to the same idea. He's going to reiterate this time with a different metaphor with light. You know, same conclusion, be who God made you to be. But this illustration is going to kind of emphasize the responsibility of the light bearer himself. That kind of comes more into focus here. So let's review that. You guys follow along the text. I'll paraphrase as I like to do. You and only you provide spiritual light in this dark world for the whole world. You're like a city on, the, on a hilltop that stands out in the dark. It can't be hidden even if it tried to be, verse 15. What craziness is it to turn on a lamp at night and then cover it over with a big basket? Instead, isn't it true you put the light where it's most needed, right there on the table, so it'll provide light for everybody in the house. This is the point of your Christian life. Let your Christian life shine for all the world to see, that others may see the goodness and the truth and the difference and all of that. And come to know God and praise him as one of his own. All right, so you are the light of the world. We're at our second and final point. Now, did you notice? There's a lot of insight already, but just reading it at surface level, right? A lot of insight for Christians, but already, I don't know if you think like an unbeliever, but it's already number two offense by its very implication before he even says anything directly offensive. What's the problem? Well, Saul of the earth is implying that the world's state is in moral decay. And a light of the world, he's implying that the whole world is in a state of spiritual darkness. You see, the gospel comes right out with the good news that starts with an offensive thing. You know, they'll say on a bumper sticker, hey, you born-again Christians, I, it says, I was born all right the first time. Do you see? So even just saying, hey, Jesus said you got to be born again. It's like, what you saying? You're saying that, uh, you know, the first time wasn't good enough, that I'm not good enough, that I'm doing something wrong, that I have to repent. That's what repent means. I have to change. Yeah, so that's why we get a little pushback. And Jesus says, I beg you, do not amend my message or the character of my life or the very thing that saves somebody because you're getting ill-received in this world. They didn't receive me well. Steady as she goes with the lifeline of eternal life. Despite what the world's saying, yes, they're in darkness. They say they're on the path to enlightenment. But let me show you from Romans 1 where it all went wrong and where the power went out 
For although they knew God, there's a knowing in our souls, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking, the whole world, became futile, and their foolish hearts, there it is, the, the, lights, the lights went out, were darkened. Verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and here's the picture of it. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God to worship things that look like men, People's bodies, gold, jewelry, cars, houses, human beings, birds, animals, and things that crawl on the ground. That's enlightenment. And there are nations that have uh, idols all over the place made in the shape of birds and snakes and animals and all kinds of things. And he said, here's where your darkness came. Now, because we love sin, and we rebelled against God and, and did our own self-willed thing, we turned into a bunch of idol worshipers and a massive power outage ensued. Now, in creation, Genesis chapter one, the earth is formless and darkness covered everything. And God's very first words, and it's in Christ. Christ is the word that speaks. He said, let there be what? Light. So, and that light was very good. And I do tell you that this is four days before there's a sun created. Think about this. He's saying, let there be my presence here that will bring order out of chaos, life and light out of darkness and death and formlessness. Let there be light. Let my action, let my presence come upon a formless and dark world and out will come light and life and truth. And by chapter three, our, four, uh, our parents, as it were, disconnected from the source of light and life. And so when you unplug there, the lights went out in them and then their children were born uh, spiritually, uh, stillborn spiritually in darkness and so the only one who could come back to rescue us, to say, hey, come out of darkness into uh, light, is the one who gave us light to begin with. That's why we don't follow a guru or some kind of spiritual teacher, or some prophet or somebody who's enlightened. How are they going to be the light of the world? God wrapped himself in human form, in flesh and blood. God himself, the light of the world, the one who said, let there be light, wrapped himself in skin and became one of us and proclaimed, I am the light of the world, here to die for your sins, to swallow up your darkness. And whoever believes in me will have the light of life. And then he turns around and makes this stunning claim. He says, you are the light of the world. You could say, wait a second here, I was just in another sermon and you said that you were the light of the world. Yeah, well, when I die for your sins and I rise from the dead and I ascend into heaven, I will send my spirit called the spirit of Christ that God, Christ by his spirit will come and empower the hearts. And on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two, they're filled with new life and new power and what's resting on their heads but a flame of fire, which gives light. The light of the world has taken up residence in every believing heart. And he says, go into all your world 
And when, it, when you do, you bring the light with you. That's the definition. That's not something. He's not asking you to do something. He's asking you to be what you are, to be what you have been made. That's saying, okay, guys, I want you to just start shining light now. You know, the light has come in if it has. Now I want you to kind of get out of the way and let it do its work. Amen. It started with little Israel. He lit a little fire there. And little Israel was the place that brought light in the world. And from little Israel came a torch of the light of the world. And then he sends that light into every single Christian heart. And collectively, he says, man, when you guys live your life in community, it's like something that cannot be hidden. People will take notice and be drawn because of the light. Now, back in those days, uh, they used a lot of limestone. And so the limestone was white, and the, by day, the sun would hit it and cause great reflection and gleaming. And at night, all their little torches and fires to cook by and their little lamps, their little oil lamps, boy, that's what it would look like. And he's saying, listen, it's the obvious thing. But he has a question, doesn't he? He says, you want to talk crazy? You want to talk crazy? Why don't we talk about somebody who takes a lamp out because now it's dark and he puts the lamp down and then he throws a blanket on top of it. Or he takes, there's a power outage in your house, let's say. It's eight o'clock, it's pitch black, you can't see anything. Everybody's like, oh, where's the flashlight? You go to the shelf, you get the flashlight. Then you come back, you turn it on as everybody's like, oh, wow. And you know just where to put it. You take out a shoebox and you put the lit flashlight in a dark house where everybody's like, whoa, it's dark. We can't see a thing. You put it in the box and then you cover it up. Jesus speaking. How ludicrous is that? Does that make any sense? How accountable you are to the others in the room. He says, you can't do that because you have to be thinking about everyone in the house. So it's not just up to you, I don't want to shine the light because I'm a little embarrassed or I don't know what to say or, you know, the last time I spoke, I got, you know, kind of some pushback there. That's fine for you, but everybody around you. See, that's the thing Jesus wants to bring out. He says, it's crazy. I mean, and why do we do that? Well, we're overcome by sin or we get worldly or we're distracted by a self-absorbed life or we're intimidated. We know it's not always easy to shine the light in our lives. I met a young man at the college that I was teaching at. I taught there eight years. I shared the gospel a lot. Now, I got to know these guys really, really well. And some of them I had over and over, quarter after quarter after quarter. It was an 18-month program. And so some of them had me for a lot of different classes and I became friends with people. I gave assignments where they could share their faith uh, when it was a class that lent itself to doing that. They all knew I was a pastor and they all knew I was vocal about it. And of the very popular classes, it was a good place to be, especially if you were a student and a Christian, right? So at the end of 18 months with one friend, let's call him Tom, and uh, one of the students, and, and Tom said something 
that a Christian would say. And I said, man, you're not a, you, what was that? And he goes, oh, I'm a Christian. I said, shut up. Listen, how can you, no, 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 no. No, you're not, you can't be a Christian. I've been watching you, I know you for 18 months. How, you've never said a word. He says, yeah, you've never written a thing. I've seen you with all your friends. I've been to lunch with you. How could you go? Well, there were some other kids, students with the lunch. You've never said a word. I, I, I would never in a million years think you're a Christian. And I'm a pastor. I said, I hope you feel the weight of that. And he said, I have two different lives. I have my Christian life. I go to church, evangelical church in Concord, a church you might recognize. He grew up in the church. He says, I just kind of, he says, I know it's wrong. And I said, you just saved yourself a 20-minute lecture (laughs) by saying, I know it's wrong. I said to him, and I remember saying these words, what about your friends? You, you want to incur some kind of chastisement from God? That's your business. You're an adult. You know better. But what about your friends? The friends I pray for all the time. I know them by name. I pray they're in my prayer life, these student friends of yours. And you're sitting right in their midst and you don't say a word ever. No one in the whole world would ever guess that you have a relationship with God. How is that possible? How is that possible that a stewardess with a downed plane with the survivors directing them through the lit path, directing them on purpose, the wrong way out. How villainous, how blasphemous. Are you crazy? Well, every time I direct them the right way, I get all this heat and flack and, and you know, it's so much easier. People like me better and I fit in better if I just tell them to go the wrong way. What? You're taking the flashlight, you put it in a shoebox. Jesus, come on, my people. It's one thing for somebody to trip because they were in the dark and they end up in the rose bushes. Ouch. It's another thing to live your life and go to your deathbed and trip and you find your soul heading toward the abyss because there was no light around you. God help us all. To understand, it's not so optional whether we're going to shine the light or be salt, that it's bigger than all of us. Amen. Let me close with this. Somebody who litter life. And because he says, listen, it's the way you respond to life. It's the way you live. Not just the things you say, but your responses and your reactions and your values and all of that. Let me tell you about a family, a dear family, went to the church show back in three buildings ago, so that ought to tell you something. A family, five kids. And some of you will know the story. The mom went to pick up the daughter at Annalee High School and on her way home to Roanoke Park was hit head on by a drunk driver, a woman. And the mom died at the scene and the daughter survived, five kids. Now at the trial for the drunk driver, one of the other daughters stood up and she read her victim statement to a hushed, packed courtroom with reporters 
in the room. And she said, because of your behavior, I am without my mother. But I am a sinner. And God has forgiven me of a lifetime of sins. And I am not in the place to judge you for your sins. I grieve for the loss of my mother, but I'm not pointing a finger at you. I point a finger to our Savior who can forgive you your terrible guilt. Nobody in that room was breathing. It was stunning. As the light went out, whoa. Just everybody in the reporters writing everything down and texting, like, oh, wow. And then the press Democrat, it shined all over the whole county because one person said, I'm just going to be who God made me to be. She wasn't just putting on any show. So when he says, uh, shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works, he's not contradicting what's coming in chapter 6 when he says, do your good deeds and in, in secret and private. The point of that is don't live as a Christian to impress other people and make them think you're holier than you really are. Get the applause of everybody. Oh, look how generous he is, you know. No. This time he says, no, go ahead and live your faith out loud. Stand up in the courtroom and say it like it is. Just, just be who you are without fear, without <laughs> intimidation, to say what's on your heart, to speak the truth in love without embarrassment, to share the gospel, to love God freely, to abstain from the joke, to not add, you know, to the conversation. When there's pushback, keep shining. When there's a cost, keep shining. When you're hurt and you miss your mom, keep shining. When they nail you to a cross, keep shining. That's what he did. He said, Father, my executioners don't fully know what they're doing. Please forgive them. And he shines. As an example to us, he says, keep shining. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, <laughs> you have made us to be salt, and you have made us to be light. Now we just pray for the grace, God, to be who we were made to be, to have the courage, to have the passion, to have the fortitude, to have the will to be part of the answer in the stark world, not to compromise God and save us from all of that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.